Good morning, church. It's good to have you all here this morning. So we're digging into the book of John. We've uh, been in this study. We're going to be in this study for quite a while. It's I don't even know when we got started. Is it January? Beginning of January? Somewhere around there. And uh, we are at chapter 2. And there's, I believe, 21 chapters, and we've got a lot to go. And we're going to slow down sometimes, pick up speed other times. But I want to make sure we cover what God wants us to hear. And the main thing of the book of John I want you to hear is this, is that we may know that Jesus is the Son of God. And we also want to believe He is the Son of God and bear witness to that fact. And that's what John wants us to understand as we're going through his book. And we've seen Jesus meet or be introduced by John the Baptist. We met his first disciples. There is a celebration, a wedding in Canaan that we uh, looked at last year where he performed his first public and recorded miracle. But there's so much more. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13. And as you're turning there, I just I think you're in for a surprise with what you're going to see in this scripture. And maybe not. It's going to be like, I already know, right? I read about a young man at college. He was so excited to get a package from home. Now, I've got two sons at college, so I know when something gets sent to them, and we don't typically send a lot of stuff, but I know that when they do get a package, they get fired up. So I was reading this. I thought this was exciting about this young man at college. He gets his package from home. He assumed it was a bunch of goodies, some maybe cookies and baked goods and uh, maybe some gift cards and other stuff in it. And uh, he opened up the box, and indeed, he found a surprise. It was garbage. You see, before he left to go back to college, his mother told him, please take care of the garbage. He never took care of the garbage. So she packaged it up and sent it to him to college as a reminder to take care of the garbage. What a wonderful surprise mom gave her son, right? Well, in this scripture, as I said, um, when we start reading about what Jesus did, it may come as a surprise to you. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's a lot of garbage in this world, and I hope and pray that uh, you're going to see how he's going to clean it all up. So let's dig right into John chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. I'm going to pause for a second and help you understand. The Jews celebrated uh, seven different kinds of, of feasts and celebrations, and the greatest one was the Passover. This takes us back uh, to the book of Exodus, when Moses was freeing the children of Israel, uh, freeing them from Egypt. And as they were leaving, right before that, um, they took in what was called the Passover. is when the Lord sent his angel, and if you did not take the, bl- uh, the blood of the lamb and put it on your doorpost, proclaiming your faith in God... What would happen? The angel of the Lord would pass over your house. If not, your firstborn was killed. And it sounds like a horrific thing, and it was. Read through that scripture sometime and understand that it is at this point in time, they were celebrating. When they left Exodus, they were celebrating the Passover of the Lord. And this is all what it takes place going back to that moment when the angel of the Lord came, when they left Exodus. All that culminated together in what they were celebrating, the Passover. And a little bit more, obviously, to this whole celebration. But at this point in time, every Jewish man was supposed to come back to Jerusalem, to the temple, for this celebration. 
And it was said by William Barclay, you know, we're, we're picturing maybe hundreds and thousands. William Barclay said this, astonishing as it may sound, it may likely be that as many as two and a quarter million Jews sometime would assemble in the holy city to keep this Passover. So you can imagine the streets were just buzzing with people and the, the temple was full as people were coming to worship. Now, I want to put a picture up here and just sort of give you an idea, a rendition of maybe what the, the temple, how it was constructed and how it looked. It was broken into different sections. The largest section to the top left, was the, was the outer court area, was the court of the Gentiles. And then it went, sort of moved on into the smaller area, it was the court for women, and then the court of Israel, which is the Jewish men, and then in the very middle was the Holy of Holies. Now, the outer court was the only place in which the Gentiles, those who were not Jewish men, could worship. So if I was a, Jew, if I was a Gentile man and I'm coming into worship to celebrate the Passover, that's where I'm going to worship at, that, that out, outer court area. And it was there where these merchants were set up. These religious leaders had basically turned that outer court of worship into a place of profit. Let me explain how they did this. Here's what happened. When you showed up, you first of all, you had to pay temple tax. Now, the temple tax uh, was equivalent to about two days' wages for a working man, and they had to be paid in a special temple coin. But here's the thing. Not everybody carried the temple coins. So I would come in with my money. I'd have to pay the temple coin, so i got to exchange my money for a temple coin. So I'm going to make the exchange, but what the money changers did was they jacked up the price and charge me for the exchange. So now i got to pay extra money for that exchange to be made. So that's the first thing that was going on here. The second thing was the Jewish leaders were also there to, uh, sort of, I'm going to say this correctly, to check out the sacrifice that you were bringing in, to inspect. So if I'm bringing in my lamb for my sacrifice, which everybody was supposed to do as a Jewish male, uh, and, and, the, and people coming in to worship, I'm bringing in my lamb, they're going to inspect it. Oh, I'm sorry, but its leg is a little crooked. Oh, there's a mark on it. See, it was supposed to be unblemished. It was supposed to be without spot. It was supposed to be perfect, right? And so these religious leaders were like looking at your sacrifice you brought and said, not good enough. But it just so happens we happen to be selling some perfect lambs right over here, some perfect sacrifices. So they would reject my sacrifice. I have to go over and purchase one of theirs, which again... The price was jacked up. They were making profit off of my coming to worship. So this is what's happening in this situation. And, uh, and, and some of us are like, I can't believe that people would do that, right? We see it all the time. When's the last time somebody went to a movie in here, right? Don't raise your hand, okay? But you went to a movie and you're like, I'm going to get a pop, uh, some, some popcorn, maybe a box of candy and, and a drink. And you're like, okay, that would be $500. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Next time I'll just buy rights to the movie, right? Um, if you go to a ball game all the time, going to a baseball game, I just want to drink a water. That's all I want. You know, we, we, we actually have to have a budget to go to a baseball game if you're going to go to a major league baseball game. But you want to get a bottle of water? It's like six fifty for a bottle of water. I'm like six fifty? I could buy two cases at Walmart for that much, right? Oh, I've never never seen this happen before, right? So what we're seeing back then is no different. See, people want to make a profit. And we understand that. In the world we live in, there's a profit to be made. But here's the problem. This was a place of worship. 
and they had taken a place of worship. The only place for me is if I was a Gentile man to come and worship. This is my only place. I, can, I can't go into the next court and I can't go into the next court. This is the only courtroom made for me to worship God. And I can't because you are cheating me out of my money and you're cheating me out of this lamb. And there's, it's, it's just chaos everywhere. So this is what's happening. Now, if you look in the other books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other Gospels, you'll say, hey, wait, wasn't there another cleansing of the temple story just like this? Yes, there was. It was right before the final week of Jesus. And it was right, there's two times he did this. And those are referenced in those books as well. And again, these religious leaders were just taking what was supposed to be a time of worship and exploiting people and their weaknesses and just preying upon them. So how does Jesus respond to all this? Well, the dishonesty of these religious leaders really, go figure, upset Jesus, right? He was ready to clear out the sin in the temple. So let's look at verse 15. Jesus made a whip from some ropes, and he caught, chased them out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the money changers, coins over the floor, turned over their tables, Then going over to the people who had sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Can you you just picture Jesus doing this? Okay, this is another one of those, when you get to heaven moments, you want to like, can I see the real on this one? I want to see what he did. Because we have these these pictures, these thoughts of like, you know, was he he Hulk-like? Was he like big and he just like, and started kicking things everywhere? Or what was he like? Or some of us were like, Jesus, wait, isn't Jesus the the really nice, soft guy that carries around the sheep over one and has a little kid over here? And he's really meek and mild, you know, right? We don't know what Jesus actually looked like. We can just sort of assume he's a Middle Easterner, so he's probably dark-complected. He probably wasn't very tall, and he, he worked with his father Joseph with masonry and carpentry, so he's probably strong. So we sort of maybe get an image of what he looked like, but in this moment, he was just knocking things over. And it wasn't probably very much like a... Um, that moment of rage where it was like, just... Uh, just Spastic-like, okay? Because remember, he braided a he took a whip and he had to braid it. So he had to stop. And again, I'm a, I'm a father of three boys. I have no idea what long hair looks like, okay, uh, in our house. And never had girls to sit there. Oh, never done that, okay? Not with the boys, anyway. Um, so, I, but I'm going to assume, help me out, ladies and fathers who have worked with braiding their, their daughter's hair, that you have to have a little tension. So there's, their head is still, you have to have a little tension. And you're pulling on and then you're sort of moving things around, right? Yeah, and it might take a little while very calculated, right? So I'm assuming when Jesus was preparing that whip, he was probably calculating in his mind how frustrated he was seeing that his place of worship had turned into what it had turned into and maybe calculate how he was going to go about. And it was at that point in time that when he's done, he took that whip and he started knocking over tables and chasing people out. Now, when this happened, look at verse 17 to see what happens. Verse 17 says, his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures passion for God's house will consume me. These disciples go back to the book of Psalm 69, verse 9. They go back to that scripture and they're reminded, they're seeing Jesus do this and it's like, whoa, that passion, that zeal is an uh, an excitement of mind, a passion, enthusiasm, a spirit. It's passion in embracing or defending anything. That's what that zeal is. That's what that passion is. And zeal or zealos coming from another Greek word, zeo, 
was used in Greek writings by Homer when he wrote the Iliad. This was hundreds of years before Christ was around in Greek. He wrote about this same word using the like water, how it boils and it gets to a point of, of passion where the, the water starts to get hot and it changes things, right? So he's using that same kind of wording saying his heart got passionate. David was passionate to worship God. And now they're seeing the passion of David in the passion of Jesus in this worship for his, his temple. You follow me on this? So this is like, he's like just born here, right? So they see this, and one author said this. John began with the miracle of conversion, changing water to wine. Then he showed Jesus performing a work of cleansing, the cleansing of the temple. This is how Jesus works with his people. First, there's a conversion, and then there's a cleansing. And he wants us to learn from this. He wasn't trying to eliminate temple worship. People think maybe he's some kind of revolutionary, right? He wanted to transform it back to what it originally was meant to be. And we need to be careful we don't confuse us with what Jesus was doing. He wasn't trying to overthrow a government. Okay? He wasn't, like I said, a revolutionary. Matter of fact, he was executed wrongly uh, on that count. But like a revolutionary, Jesus would say, I do demand your involvement, your love, your self-sacrifice as my follower. I do believe he does demand that of us. Let's look at verse 18 and go to read on. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? Who gives you this right, right? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. I'll raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his body. Now, immediately the Jewish leaders, right away, they confront Jesus. They want to know, who gave you the authority to do what you just did? The way you acted. Who gave you that authority? Show us a sign. You got some kind of special authority? Show us some kind of special sign. Show us a miracle to prove it. Now, not necessarily a bad question for them to ask. I mean, anyone who drove out the merchants and had the authority to claim it, well, who gave you that authority? They wanted to know if Jesus really had the authority. The problem is they demanded a sign for Jesus to prove it. He didn't need to give them a sign. He is the Son of God, right? He replies this. He goes, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. Now, we don't know. We weren't there. We didn't see it. We don't know if he was like, like, pointing at himself, like, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. We don't know if he was doing that, but we do know from Scripture that that's what he was referring to. He was talking about his own body. He probably even gestured. We don't know. And it's amazing as in the Scripture is that these religious leaders would attempt to destroy his body. The irony is that the religious leaders themselves would be the means by which this prophecy would be fulfilled. And when Jesus said destroy the temple, he knew that they would do their best to destroy it. If you read in the books of Matthew and Mark, remember at the trial of Jesus. It was there at the trial of Jesus when charges were brought against him about destroying the temple. We read in Matthew chapter 26, verses 60 to 61, says, But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they cannot use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward and declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So they, they referred back to this moment and said, hey, we heard this guy say this. You know, Again, they took it way out of context, right? But when he died on the cross, 
There were mockers who came in front of the cross. And they too shouted some things at Jesus. It says in Matthew 27, 40, the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then if you're the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. Jesus goes on to say, I will raise it up. I love it. I will raise up. He confidently claims the power to raise himself from the dead. You repeat that claim in John 10, verse 18. We'll read that probably a few months from now. But no mere man could make that claim to raise himself from the dead. Nobody could do that. The claim of Jesus, though, is remarkable. It's audacious. It's incredible and evidence of his self-awareness of who he is and that deity being the Son of God. And he makes that claim. But the religious leaders, they didn't understand it. They're sitting there in this temple and they go, wait a minute. Uh, we're in the third phase of renovation of this temple. We started back in 16 B.C., and they don't know, but it's going to be finishing up around 63 A.D. So right then, at that point in time, about 30 A.D., they've been in this for about 46 years, and the renovation is still not done. And he's saying he'll knock it down and put it back up in three days. We're at year 46, and we're still not complete. It wasn't clicking. They weren't getting it. No one understood what Jesus was saying when he first said it. And here's the thing. A lot of times we don't understand what God wants us to know until he reveals it through special revelation. When we open up God's word and we read and we study, we need to ask God's spirit to speak to us and help us understand what's going on so that revelation takes place. We begin to understand and as we understand, change takes place within us. There is no revelation taking place with these religious leaders. There is no understanding taking place because these leaders were not paying attention to God's word. Common sense and seeking truth was tossed out the window. See, this is what happens when greed and money and power is involved. You forget what God says. So we see then that's what's taking place. It still happens today. Common sense, biblical understanding, tossed out the window when we want to be in charge, when we're greedy, when we're hungry for power. Simple point. To receive understanding and revelation, we must be reading God's truth, not people's opinion. Well, I read this article on Facebook. I read this article in a magazine. Where do you start? In God's word. That's where truth is first discovered. The disciples grew in their faith and they gained wisdom from God's word. If you look back, remember verse 17, it says, Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scripture. They're watching Jesus do something and they remember God's word from the book of Psalms. And they're putting the two together and revelation came because they knew God's word. Verse 22, look what it says. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered... He had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus said. It was only after the death and resurrection of Jesus that his disciples, they understood and believed both the scriptures and the specific promises of Jesus. Let's look at verse 23. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust him. But Jesus didn't trust him because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about the human nature. For he knew it was in each person's heart. Jesus knew that this was a very thin and superficial belief going on. He knew their belief wasn't very deep. 
It wasn't based on anything other than the, maybe the admiration of the spectacular, the miracles that he'd done. And, and, and knowing this, Jesus didn't trust him. And when many came to believe him, he didn't commit himself to them. It wasn't, he wasn't there for man's approval. He knows our heart. In the book of Jeremiah, 17, verse 9, it says this, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Church, let's face it. Our hearts are bad, deceitful, wicked, evil. That's the way it is. That's what makes the gospel so incredible is when we start understanding how wicked we are, how awesome God is, how we cannot do this without his son, Jesus Christ. But we have to start with the truth, where our hearts are. It, you know, Adam and Eve, it started with them. They first rebelled against God. They wanted to do it their way. And then we go through more scripture, more scripture. They, the children of Israel, they were freed from Egypt. They leave and they're like, this is awesome. We're free. We're free people. We can worship God now. And they go to worship God, but it isn't too long before they start to rebel against God. And story after story in the Bible, we read this. Example of example how people you know, rebelled against God. And we get to Romans 3.23 and it's a, it's a Incredible reminder. Listen, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's one glorious, holy standard that God has. And guess what? We fall way short. And and knowing what was and is in humanity, Jesus says, that's why I don't trust you. I'm not here for your approval. I'm here to save you. He knows us. He knows the worst thing about us. And I think that's what makes the next thing so incredible, is that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what makes the good news so good. When you think about this exchange, you know, what do we, what do we learn from this exchange that took place here in the temple? Well, the people claimed to believe in him. They believed in Jesus, but they really didn't have a strong belief in him. Jesus knew they claimed faith, but he goes, they really don't have faith. So church, I want to ask you this, because here, here it is. We're all in the temple, so to say. We're all in the church here, right? So let me ask you this. Do you believe? I mean, do you really believe in the Son of God? Do you really believe in Jesus Christ? This book, the book of John, was written so that we would believe. So I have to ask you, Do you believe? Now, how do you know if somebody believes? And you might be even sitting there going, wait, I thought I'd believe, but now I don't know. You're making me doubt. My job here today is not to make you doubt, but make you know what truth is, reveal truth to you. So you do believe, and you fully believe, and you have confidence in what you believe. My, son, we, my sons, we'd sit there and we'd watch maybe a ball game or something. We'd see an athlete point to the sky and be like, yeah, praising God, right? And they're like, is he a Christian? I mean, every time they see an athlete, like, get on an interview, yeah, I just want to thank God. Oh, he must be a Christian, because he just thanked God. It's like, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, because usually about five minutes later, you see that same person, like, yeah, boop, boop, and it's like, whoa, that just came out of his mouth. I'm sorry, but if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you probably wouldn't be saying that. Or their actions, they do something, you're like, whoa, I can't believe what he just did. And he's the one that just pointed and gave God all the glory. It's like, so then my boy's like, so is he a Christian? It's like, here, here, here's, here I want you to know this. I'm not God, so I can't answer that question. 
Only God can answer that question. Only God knows the heart of that person. So I'm, I can't judge them. I can't question them. I saw what they did. But here's the thing. If we really believe in him, what should that look like? James 2.19 says that the demons believe. But guess what? They aren't saved from hell. What makes the difference between me and a demon? If we both believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, why is that demon going to be in eternal hell and I'm not? Obviously, there's a little bit more than just believing the facts about who Jesus Christ is. Believing that he existed, that he died, that he buried, that he rose from the dead. There's more to it than that. John 1.12 says, But to all who believe him and accept him, he gave the right to become children of God. But what does that mean? John 20, verse 31 says, But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life with the power of his name. True belief is, is deeper than just a mental acceptance of, oh, that's what it says. True belief is seen in a response to sin. Verse 18, their response to Jesus is a very indicator of their belief. You know what? They knew the purpose of the temple. They knew, they knew the court of the Gentiles was there for a place to worship. The religious leaders knew this. They knew that they, and they should have known better than to turn that place into a place of profit. They knew it, but they justified what they did as being, it's okay. Oh, we need to make money. Who knows? Well, we've got to finish the renovation project, so let's make a little extra money. God will forgive us. It's funny how we take sin and we excuse sin. They fail to recognize greed and dishonesty and hypocrisy. How we see sin in our lives and respond to it is an indicator of our faith, church. Are you aware of the sin in your life? Do you justify it? Do you excuse it? Well, what I'm doing isn't as bad as that person over there. So it's because I'm not as bad as them, I can excuse what I'm doing. That doesn't work. We may say, well, wait, 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 wait. Hey, Jesus got angry. I know you look at me and you're thinking I'm an angry person and, and I'm a sinner because I'm always angry and I'm doing things in my anger. Look at Jesus did. So I'm going to justify what I did because, hey, if... If Jesus can flip over a table, I can flip off a ref, right? Oh, no, you can't. We may say that, we may excuse it, but what is acceptable and what's not acceptable? We know, we know what anger looks like, don't we? We know what domestic violence looks like. We know what road rage looks like. We know what verbal abuse is. We're very familiar with these, these outbursts of the results of our anger. We know that. But for Jesus, this was a righteous anger. Understand this. Righteous anger is getting mad at what God gets mad at. Corruption should make us mad. Sex trafficking should make us mad. Abortion should make us mad. The things that God is mad at, we should be mad at as well. Ask yourself, is God with me on this? If not, then it's probably an unrighteous anger. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27 says this, And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. So get mad at the umpire. Some of us do that, don't we? Guilty. 
I'll be the first up here to say that. Maybe the store didn't have your food. Oh, can't find where they, where they move the organic cereal to. Can't find it, right? I went into a store and they had taken all the foods that, I mean, I've been in the store multiple times. I knew exactly where everything is on the shelf. And they decided to integrate all those whole foods and certain kinds of foods with everything else. I couldn't find what I was looking for. So I'm pushing the cart along, looking, can't find it. And there's a little chart. They had charts on the end of everything, a little piece of paper. And I went up to the lady that worked there. And then here comes another lady. She's pushing her cart. And we both sort of come at the same time. And we both have the same look. We can't find what we're looking for, right? And so they give us, oh, okay, i got to find it. That's now at aisle 47. Okay, and that's on 32. Okay. And the other lady, she was, oh, she was fuming. And I was like, I think I'll just get my cart and just keep moving. You go, see, there's a different way to respond. Her response was she was going to let that lady who happened to be working that hour know that she was mad. Me, I'm like, I'm just going to get my steps in today, okay? I'm just going to get my walk in, right? But I was frustrated, right? How about when somebody's making your food and they're not fast enough at the restaurant for you? How about when somebody pulls out in front of you? How about when somebody is behind you at night driving and they got their brights on? Last night, coming home, four-lane highway, car behind me, brights on. So I get over in the other lane and I try to speed up. Now I feel like, am I going to have to break the speed limit just to get out of there? Because I'm, I'm driving like this. And, you know, part of me is like, I'm just going to slam on the brakes, let them pass. I'll get over and I'll put my brights on them. Right? That's how you get back at people. Right? Well, here's the thing. If I allow my frustration and my anger to get to the point where now I'm acting in a sinful manner, then I have a problem. Here's the thing. Here's what happens. That verse in Ephesians says, if I, in my anger, if I'm, I'm basically opening up the door, I'm letting the devil get a foothold. Here's what happens. If I allow the devil to get a foothold, guess what the devil does? He will always force his way into my life and he'll step on my joy and my peace and my kindness. He will make applesauce out of the fruit of the spirit. That's what he does. And so we got to be careful in those moments. We have to ask ourselves, do we excuse our anger? Do I excuse my anger? A true believer lives with conviction. A true believer lives with a high consciousness of sin and says, I recognize what I'm doing and I can't excuse it. I need to ask for forgiveness of it. I, you know, I used to get mad uh, sometimes at certain things, and there's now I've worked on a few things. It's like, okay, a little bit more peace. Thank you, Lord. I need it. Now, am I perfect on this? No. But my understanding is my anger needs to be a righteous anger, not an unrighteous anger. True believers, uh, true belief is seen in our response to sin. And I want to encourage you, church, if, if we know we're sinning, lying, cheating, looking at something we shouldn't be looking at, Stop. A true believer recognizes this is sin and I need to stop. That's where true faith is seen. True belief uh, is also seen in our response to authority. Now the religious leaders uh, in this here, they're, they're challenging his authority. You gotta love this. They, they did not have a clue as to who Jesus was. He's the ultimate authority. And they're coming up to him like, hey, what gives you the right to do all this? It's like the fact that he's a son of God Gave him every right, you know? Does my personal agenda clash with God? We've got to ask these questions, okay? Does my personal agenda clash with God? When I went to college, I wanted to be a math teacher or a business person. I didn't know. 
It's one of those two things. Everybody was telling me, you're going to be a farmer or you're going to be a pastor. And I was like, I don't want to be either one. Don't want to farm. Don't want to pastor. So I went to school to be a businessman. And my first semester, I'm sitting in chapel. Dr. Jay Kessler was, was speaking, and God hit me over the head like I was Jonah. He's like, man, you're running the wrong direction. And I remember that chapel. I remember where I was sitting. I remember God saying, no, you're going into ministry. I had to surrender my personal agenda to God at that moment. How about our thinking? How are we doing with surrendering our thinking to God, our thoughts on the, our opinions. This is a tough one. Let me get very specific with a certain subject here. Okay, marriage and sexuality is defined. Is I'm sorry, is being redefined today because of people's opinions and thoughts, not truth. Let me take you to truth. Um, Matthew chapter 19, verses four to five. Jesus said this. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They recorded that from the beginning, God made male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Jesus makes it very clear that from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, there's only two genders, male and female, not a third. And he never gave permission for man to create a third. What God instituted. Some of you are like, oh, Rex, back off. No, I will not back off. I, I'm, listen, I'm just a messenger. I'm sharing with you what God has to say in his truth, and I firmly believe it. And I think today we have walked away from truth. And we think that our opinions, our personal feelings should outrule God. Shame on us. Truth is truth right here. God created male and female. Marriage is between a man and a woman, not two men, not two women. And this isn't just a spiritual truth. It's a biological truth. God created male and female to, one, reproduce. Two men, two women cannot reproduce. That's a biological truth. Throw the biological aside. Just go back to the spiritual truth. This is what God's telling us. God didn't design mankind the way we think God said, this is truth. Now, listen, people say, I think or I feel, and I understand that. And listen, I, there's, listen, love you, okay? I won't argue with you on this one. But what about my brother? What about my sister? And they're, and they're acting this way. It's like, I, I know, I know. I deal with family too. But just because they're my family doesn't mean I can excuse it. Because it is truth. I can't excuse truth. Truth is real. Truth is right there. Be careful and know that God will answer you when you say, I am God who defined gender and marriage. When we sit there like those religious leaders, who are you to say this? God will say, I am God. I'm the one that defined marriage and gender and so forth and so on. And we've lost respect for authority with God. When God says something, we're like, whatever doesn't fit with me, so I don't have to listen to it. <laughs> Sorry, it's truth. You may not like, like I said, that I'm standing here and saying this, but again, as a messenger, I'm delivering to you truth. Just as I receive truth, we must all receive truth. And when we don't like what we hear, we refuse to accept it, just understand this. It's not that you're rejecting what I'm saying. You're rejecting God. And I'm going to tell you, when you reject God, you're in trouble. So that's why we must surrender 
our opinions, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions to God. You know, just this past week, I'll give you an example. President of the United States, whether you like him or not, he's the president. I've always understood this. My parents have taught me this. Respect those in authority. You know, I love the kids from the South. And I'll tell you why. Um, my son, um, his roommate is from Florida, and his other friends are from Florida. Um, he, even Paul does this, okay? He says, yes, sir. See, if you're from the South, if you were raised, say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Politeness, respectfulness. We've lost that. And as I watched the president give his announcement from the lawn of the White House, there was a reported step, asked a question, and he gave the answer. And then he kept on. It's like, you've given your question. Have a seat. And the reporter would not sit down. And he started going back at the president. Oh, I'm trying to show him up. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? That's the president. But, oh, I forgot. We don't have to show respect to people if we don't want to. Shame on us. Have we forgotten respect for authority? Teachers. Coaches, those officiating. I, I get it. It's difficult. But listen, as a Christian, I serve God. This is his word. When he speaks, we must be quiet and listen to his truth. Quit fighting. You'll never win. So I, ask, I have to ask myself, have we surrendered ourselves to God? I'm going to ask the worship team to, to come forward. Listen, church. We were created in the image of God. Scripture is very clear on this. As a Christian, the Spirit of God wants to come into our life like a temple. And just as Jesus came into that temple and he saw the religious leaders had made excuses for their sin and they believed in their opinions above God, they messed up the temple and worship couldn't take place. Church, I'm telling you right now, the things of this world has infiltrated our temple, our body. Our thoughts, our emotions, the choices we make. Oh, it feels good. It's pleasurable. I get it. I get it. But what we're doing is defiling the temple and there's no longer room to worship. This morning, I'm going to ask you to do this when I pray. Ask God to come in and clean the temple. What needs to be tossed out of your life? What are you struggling with? Greed, lust, deception, anger, confusion. What amazes me is that God looks at us and he says, I see all that in your heart. But I love you enough to come in and clean it up. I love you right where you're at. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it great that we don't have to get ourselves all cleaned up before we come to church. We come as we are. And we meet him here and he says, I'm ready to do some more work inside your temple. There's some things that need to get tossed. Let me help you out. But we got to let go. He is God. We are not. Let him do some cleaning. Let him do some cleaning. Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are. That in spite of all the junk in our lives, God, we have opinions. We have these thoughts. We do these things out of greed. Sometimes we do things we didn't realize were even wrong. 
And then later we feel convicted of it and we excuse ourselves and we say, well, at least it wasn't as bad as that person. God, regardless, it's still junk in our lives that needs to be cleaned up. God, I stand before this church as an imperfect man in need of you. God, I understand your grace because I need it every day. My thought life isn't the best. My emotions can sometimes be radical. Lord, I just, I look at things and, and I sit there and say, you still love me, God? Are you sure you want me to pastor this church? By the grace of God, he's forgiven me. God, thank you. God, for this church body. Clean us up, God. The things that we've made excuses for, no more excuses. Forgive us, Lord. We truly believe that you are the Son of God. We truly believe, and for that reason, we want to surrender everything. Our personal agendas, our emotions, our, our actions, our thought life. We want to give those to you, God. Clean up our temple. Purify us, Lord. So we can live in a way that honors you. I know I'm not going to be in agreement with this world. I don't have to be. I just want to be in agreement with you. So God, work in our hearts right where we're at right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. For the sacrifice of your son. For Jesus Christ dying being buried, coming back to life, resurrecting from the dead to give us eternal life and for your Holy Spirit that resides in us now. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.